0: Welcome back to New Books in Sociology. My name is Sarah Patterson, and I'm one of the hosts on this channel. Today, we'll be talking to Liana Kristen Landivar about her new book, Mothers at Work, Who Ops Out? Welcome to the show. Hi, Sarah. Thank you for having me here today. Well, to get us started today, we're going to have you first go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, I'm a sociologist and a senior researcher
1: at a federal agency, So I'm joining you in my personal capacity today and not speaking on behalf of my agency. I'm also affiliated with the University of Maryland's Maryland Population Research Center. I have a PhD in sociology from the University of California at Irvine. And my dissertation focused on women's employment and work hours. And, And it was a pretty good experience because I'm still interested in those issues 10 years later now. So for the past several years, I've been working on research that shows how The occupations that women are in affect their work-life decisions, and I see that each occupation has its own challenges, its own barriers, and opportunities to combine work and family. So I've really been reflecting on these occupational issues and how they link up with current and proposed work-life policies, and I think we'll see some of that in the book that we'll discuss today.
0: Great. Thank you. To start off, um, can you describe how this book came about for you?
1: So many years ago, I was at an author meets critic session at the American Sociological Association. And these are really great sessions. And it's like a book club, but the author is usually there and experts weigh in with all these great insights and questions. So I was actually in the audience for one of these sessions. And the book that they were talking about that day was Pamela Stone's book, which was called Opting Out, Why Women Really Quit Careers and Head Home. And I hadn't actually read the book when I was in the audience, so, so it was a, a great experience for me to get to hear about all of this. Um, and I read it many times now, and it's a really good book. But the book is basically about the challenges facing women in elite professional jobs. So she interviews about 50 or so women, and all of the women that she'd interviewed had left the labor force. And she goes into some of the pushes that uh, push women out of the labor force, as well as some of the pulls. Um, that these women had for for why they ended up leaving. So so that's what her book was about. And so I I got pretty interested in reading this book while I was there, but the audience also had some really good questions. Um, So some of the things that they asked, for instance, were, what were the differences between women who opted out or women who stayed? But this particular book, all of the women had opted out, so we, we didn't really know. And then another thing that people asked were, know, were were women more likely to leave when they had younger kids or or when they had older kids? And I think a lot of the research shows that women tend to leave more when they have younger kids, but they had some pretty good instincts for why perhaps some women, especially in in these elite managerial occupations, might leave when they had older kids. So they talked about kids having lots of scheduled activities and more demands for For them being present in their lives. So so people really wanted to know how how age mattered here. And then the other thing that came up, which is really important, is uh, were black or Hispanic women more likely or less likely to opt out? And something that's very, very common in this type of research is that um, they're using small samples, so you can't really get at racial and ethnic differences in, in opting out. So at the time I worked at the Census Bureau and I had access to large government data sets. And so while I was in the audience, I was getting ideas of of how I might be able to look at some of these questions. So so that's what I set out to do with this book.
0: Great. Thank you. So at the beginning of your book, you sort of lay out this framework of the opt-out narrative and how it's often framed as a personal choice uh, for women. And I think one of the really interesting things about your book as well is how your methods are different than some of the studies that have come before. Um, in your overall contribution with this book, so I was hoping you could tell us more about the national data set you use so so
1: the media coverage of of opting out is uh, pretty much tilted in the direction of covering managerial and professional women and especially in the media coverage and some of these are very popular articles I can think of some in you know the New York Times or the Atlantic um, they tend to focus on highly educated women that are at the top of of their fields but they very much focus on personal issues. So things like they really wanted to stay at home, they thought they wanted to have a career, but then they decided not to. And, and it's very personal, and they don't tend to look at a lot of the workplace barriers that, that people face. Um, they also don't tend to look at, for instance, divorced women or, or women that may not fit this particular profile, which some research has shown that it really only fits about 5% of the U.S. population. So so these studies aren't really comparative. Um, they're only looking at specific types of women women and specific types of jobs, and so they don't really appreciate the challenges in other occupations, and we really see that women don't have the same kinds of barriers. So let me give you the example of, of work hours. So women in these elite jobs, um, some of the concerns that people bring up are the long hours of work. But Women and say retail and service sector, they might have more more issues with unpredictable schedules or maybe having too few hours. So you can't really just talk about women in, in these managerial and professional occupations and these elite jobs and think that the solutions you come up for that particular group are really gonna translate and, and affect all women and, and even the majority of women which are in other occupations. So that's really one of the issues with with the coverage. Um, Now in terms of the data set, um, so I use four different government surveys. Um, I use the American Community Survey and that's the largest um, national household survey that we have. So we have tons of data. So I have hundreds and thousands of observations of mothers. So I can really look at at the data for, for particular racial and ethnic groups. I can look at Mothers with kids in different age groups, I can look at um, very specific occupations. So in this book, I I look at 55 occupations rather than just having to group them into very large categories, which are sometimes less useful. And then I also supplement my, my data with um, the decennial census data with the current population survey and the survey of income and program participation when I'm looking at specific questions. Um, throughout the book.
0: Great. Thank you. Another aspect of your book that I found to be really interesting was your discussion of attitudes and how the attitudes that we often have towards women in work differ from how we see men at work as well as men at home. And so I was wondering if you could tell us more about how attitudes play into this decision to opt out.
1: Mm -hmm. So we've seen over time that People have become more supportive of working mothers, um, and, and there are surveys that people use to look at um, support for for different measures of for, for working mothers, but we still see that about a third of people are not fully supportive of, of working women. So you'll see that in, in questions that ask whether working mothers have as warm of a relationship with their children or if their children suffer because they work. And people are far more likely to, to judge women for working and, and not so much for men. So there, there's far more support for men to work than than there is for women. And in terms of opting out, what I see in, in my study is that about a fifth of women do leave the workforce when they have children compared to only 4% of men. So, so that plays out in different ways for men and women, and, and it's still not even close to being equal. And we also see in research that men face stigma for, for being more involved at home. So if they take leave or if they're even provided with leave, which there's a big disparity and, and especially involuntary company provided policies and providing leave to fathers, they're more likely to, to be discriminated against and and to face some sort of backlash at work if, if they take leave, because as a culture, we still don't prioritize um, home caregiving for men. Uh, We prioritize work for men. And work is still seen as optional for women in a way that it's not for for men. So, and then the ideal worker script that we have privileges those without caregiving responsibilities, and, and we still tend to think of men as, you know, the primary providers for the family who do not have caregiving responsibilities. So that affects men and women in different ways.
0: Great, thank you. Um, another aspect that I thought was really important in your book is this care that you give to the differences um, by race and education among mothers. And so I was hoping you could tell us more about that part of your book.
1: So when we look at opting out, um, and, and we look at it specifically by race, so, so first you have the, the overall opt-out rate when you're not looking at it by occupation. And um, Black mothers have very strong labor force attachment. They're less likely to opt out. And they tend to work longer hours than non-mothers, in fact, so they're not scaling back either. And Hispanic mothers, um, to a lesser extent, but they're also less likely to opt out compared with white women. And they're also less likely to scale back. So even though they are more likely to be concentrated in, in jobs that don't have as many benefits and that impose a lot more barriers to combine work and family, if you look at, if you compare black, Hispanic, and white women in the same occupation, that's where you see that Black and Hispanic mothers are more attached to the labor force and they're less likely to leave. So um, opting out is is more common among white and Asian women who are married, who have lower levels of educational attainment, and who have another source of income um, that can support them not being in the labor force.
0: Great. Thank you. I think another really important um, aspect of this Uh, book is this emphasis that you give to the importance of gauging work hours, and so not just looking at part-time versus full-time work, but also the importance of work hours.
1: This was one of the most surprising findings in the book, and that's, you know, my dissertation was on work hours, uh, and I was surprised by this finding. So what I find is that Um, we're not actually working longer hours. And we hear stories all the time about, you know, the ever increasing work hours and people working 70 hours a week. But what I find is that work hours started coming down since around the year 2000. So a lot of the studies that, that we commonly cite, which are great studies, they typically use data that end in the early 2000s. So I think we've extrapolated and and created some trends based on what what were increasing work hours up till the year 2000 and assume that it has continued, but it hasn't. So there's a pretty significant drop and it predates the, the Great Recession. So it's not because of the recession and it's across all groups. Um, I looked at managerial jobs. I looked at professional jobs and service jobs. I looked at all kinds of different occupations, and I mapped them back to 1970, and it's declined, um, particularly in managerial and professional occupations. It's declined among men and women, and also just to look at it a different way, instead of just looking at average work hours, because some might say, well, maybe the average is down because you have more people working part-time, but that's not the reason, um, that may be a partial explanation, but it's not the main one because overwork is also down. So if you look at the percentage of people working 50 hours a week or more, or 60 hours a week or more, that's actually down as well. So so it's interesting because um, it doesn't match up with what we commonly hear. And I, I checked this across multiple surveys and the results the same, work hours are down. So, workers might be feeling more time pressured uh, because we we do work long hours in international perspective. Um, the hours in the u s tend to be longer, and we also perhaps have a a flourishing of technology that might tether us to work more so people might feel like they're they're always online or they could get an email at any time, so maybe they feel like their their work hours are longer or they're constantly attached to their job but what we see is that average work hours are down, and parents are spending more time with their children, not less. And young men and women are increasingly valuing work-life balance, so maybe that plays a role in the declining work hours. So, so when we're looking at changes in, in mother's labor force particip- participation broadly, um, it's important to keep in mind these changes in, in employment and work hours. So there's a long way to go with, with workplace changes but it's normative for, for mothers to work. And with work hours being on the, on the decline, as, as I show here, it's actually more favorable for them to work.
0: Great, thank you. So to sort of get into the meat of your book, who is opting out? Um, you start with this example of a company that provided flexibility, but only to their managerial staff. And so I think one of the important parts of this question of who is opting out is why are we so obsessed with particular positions in workplaces compared to other ones?
1: Um, so let me give you an overview of, of what I find on, on who opts out, and then I'll talk a bit about about the policies um, that we need to look at. So so we have um, mothers are more likely to leave than, than non-mothers, as, as most would suspect. So about 19% of mothers uh, leave the labor force compared to about 10% of non-mothers. Uh, But mothers in managerial and professional jobs are the least likely to leave, so about 14% of these mothers are leaving compared to mothers in, say, construction or agriculture where it's closer to 30%. And if we look at specific occupations, um, the occupation with with the very lowest opt-out rate was doctors, so only 4% of doctors um, that have children left the labor force, and it's actually no different than non-mothers. And lawyers, pharmacists, scientists, they, they all had opt out rates that were below average. And yet, this is the group that the media is most focused on when we talk about opting out, but they have pretty low rates. So, the highest rates were in agriculture, retail, cashiers, food service, where almost a third were leaving. So, to get into this why issue, um, we have to consider a couple different things. So, first, we have to look at the baseline. So some occupations have high turnover and parenthood might make that worse, but um, we can't just look at that gap where it's 19% of mothers are opting out and compare it to zero if you weren't a parent because non-mothers actually left the labor force about 10% of the time. So really only half of the reason is parenthood. So there are other factors about the job that, that can affect um, labor force exit. So the next thing to consider are the characteristics of the women that are important. And highly educated women, um, women that have higher earnings or higher earnings potential are less likely to leave. So the doctors, for example, they have many years of training. Um, They they typically have the the highest earnings of, of all the occupations that we measure. And they do have some flexibility on their hours to cut back. So instead of opting out, they can Scale back on some hours, and they stay in the labor force. Um, and then, if we look at um, demographic characteristics, which I've mentioned, it are black and Hispanic women are are less likely to, to leave the labor force. Um, black women, in particular, about 22% less likely than, than white women to leave. So, so these characteristics of women are important in differentiating who is leaving and who is staying. And finally, the characteristics of the job matter. So jobs that have flexibility where the employee controls their work schedule and that have benefits provided um, are more likely to to stay at work so so this benefits issue in particular so some jobs lack paid sick leave or paid parental leave and um, Joan Williams has a great um, database of arbitration showing how women in, in some jobs get fired because their their kid had to go to the ER and, and just not having any um, allowance for sick leave can really cost some women their jobs. So, so the lack of benefits can really affect um, this issue of opting out. And to just talk about this, this issue of leave a little bit more because it, it really shows Um, I think the company that you mentioned that I talked about how how you see different provision of of family leave, even within the same organization, um, even if we only look at um, access to unpaid uh, family leave. So what a person might get through the Family Medical Leave Act, for instance. So women that are highly educated and professional are more likely to have access to unpaid leave through the FMLA as well as paid leave through their employer. So the FMLA, um, the way that it works is you get twelve weeks of unpaid job protection. So you can take twelve weeks off uh, for a variety of reasons. And only about a fifth of of people actually use the FMLA for for reasons related to having a new child. But you you basically have twelve weeks where you get to keep your job and, and health benefits if you were receiving them. But the FMLA has restrictions. And those restrictions are that you have to have been employed with your employer for 12 months. Um, You have to work an average of 24 hours a week in the past year. And you have to have about 50 employees in in a particular um, job site radius for you to be eligible. So a lot of small businesses are not eligible. But in particular, the the requirement that you have 12 months of, of job history and that you work 24 hours a week, um, makes it very difficult for women in retail and service jobs to meet these tenure and work hour requirements. Um, But even if they did meet the requirements, the leave is unpaid. So quitting their job might be the only available option they have to recover from childbirth, or they might return very quickly. and, And you see stories of women returning to work while they haven't recovered just days later and you also have stories of people going on public assistance or borrowing money or or putting off paying bills because they just can't afford it. So that's the unpaid side. So there's already a disparity in how different occupations women in different occupations are covered by a, a national federal unpaid policy. When you look at paid voluntary programs, you see even more disparity. So voluntary programs typically cover their professional salaried workforce, but they leave out other workers. So even in in the same company, you can have stark disparities between somebody working in the office versus somebody working out in the field, for instance, or in the warehouse. And these volunteer programs are also more likely to exclude fathers. So the voluntary programs tend to make inequality across the workforce worse, not better.
0: Great. Thank you. So uh, an important flip question of who is opting out is who is staying? Um, and so here in this part of your book, you kind of move into this discussion of um, reduced work hours um, and how we're sort of missing this important aspect of scaling back. So I was wondering if you could talk more about that part of your book.
1: Yeah, this was a very important um, thing to look at. So some others do work fewer hours on average, but the magnitude is very small. So, we're talking about generally two hours less a week. Um, so, so, that means that it's, it's very important to distinguish between working part-time versus working reduced hours. So, schedule flexibility and hours reductions can look very different in managerial and professional occupations than in retail and service, for instance. So, in retail and service, women are more likely to be part-time workers, regardless of whether they're mothers or not. So they they don't have full-time hours, and those are probably limited as a condition of their employment. So a lot of times in these sectors, work hours are limited so that they don't become eligible for particular benefits. So women in these different occupations are starting from different baselines. So again, like labor force participation, um, different occupations have different baseline hours so we have to pay attention to the occupation so that mothers and non-mothers are starting at the same baseline so what we see is that if you're working part-time it's it's really more sector dependent so on average mothers work two hours less but mothers that were full-time workers before they had kids tend to remain full-time workers. And mothers that were part-time workers before their kids tend to remain part-time workers. So in studies that just look at a a full-time part-time divide are really going to miss this mechanism of of scaling back by a couple of hours a week, but not crossing that full-time part-time threshold. So for instance, um, doctors again, they scaled back the largest number of hours. So they scale back about seven hours a week after they have kids but they're still working on average of 47 hours a week. So it's full-time and you would just completely miss that, that they scale back on hours because they're still full-time workers. Whereas cashiers on the other hand, um, they don't scale back at all. But if you look at mothers or non-mothers, they're, they're both part-time workers. They're both working less than 30 hours a week. So that's something that that we just miss. We We miss that distinction. And, and we're missing that way that mothers are scaling back. So, so, again, mothers and managerial and professional occupations have more job flexibility, particularly with their work schedule. So the scaling back is larger. So they're more likely to stay in the labor force. And that's linked to their ability to cut back on hours to accommodate some of these family responsibilities they may have. It makes it a little bit easier to manage both of those. So I I think of something that Forrest Briscoe talked about, which is looking for the distinctive sources of flexibility in different occupations. So we we may not all have the same ability to say work remotely that works for some jobs but not others. And the same with setting a schedule. Some occupations might um, more easily be able to offer that to workers where you can set particular hours of work or be able to vary hours of work in any given day. But there are other things we can think about, such as providing workers with advance notice of a schedule or offering them predictability in what hours they will be working. Because particularly for people that have childcare arrangements, having unpredictable schedules or suddenly having to work an overtime shift, but that can really wreak havoc with their with their schedules and their childcare arrangements. So, So just being able to think about what kind of options we can offer in different occupations so that people can reconcile work and family um, is, is a good approach to take.
0: Great. Thank you. So another interesting uh, big question that you ask in your book is whether age matters. And here I think um, scholars often focus on the age of the kid, but you're also questioning the age of the mother. So I was wondering if you could talk more about how, you know, sort of like young mothers with young children have different patterns than older mothers with older children, for example.
1: Yeah, so so I was really interested in in whether um, this question that an audience Number had brought up, you know, does it really matter that older kids have more scheduled activities and um, perhaps more um, time demands to be present for certain activities and carpools and all that. So um, I looked at this and what I found was that mothers of young kids are more likely to leave the labor force, just period. So if you had younger kids, you, you had higher labor force exit rates, no matter... Um, your particular age, whether you were an older mother or a younger mother. But the age of mothers mattered um, for scaling back. So in particular, older mothers uh, were more likely to scale back. And again, particularly in managerial and professional occupations. So, but this was tied more to their work environment and it was not related to the age of their children. So these weren't age-specific needs. it wasn't that the older kids had, you know, these particular demands or younger kids had these other needs. It was more related to the likelihood that they had more flexibility on their job, they had more work tenure, more resources, um, and so they could accommodate that regardless of the age of their child.
0: Great, thank you. Um, so another really interesting part of your book um, in chapter six is this idea that uh, when we're thinking about particular research questions, which reference group are we talking about and how that sort of plays into what you find?
1: So older mothers um, tended to work more. They worked, they were more likely to be in the labor force. They worked longer hours. But I always had to be um, aware of who, who was I comparing them to. Am I comparing them to other women of the same age? Or are you comparing... For women generally, so when you're looking at younger mothers, are you comparing them to younger non-mothers or are you comparing them to um, women in general? Because at that point, it, it really mattered um, who had uh, a greater degree of scaling back or who had higher um, labor force participation rates. So even though I said that um, older mothers scaled back more, so they cut back more hours when compared to women of the same age. But if I were to just take even their scaled back hours, so even older mothers who had scaled back and just took that baseline and compared it to younger mothers, they're still working longer hours than the younger mothers. So that became critical to to keep in mind, um, who are you comparing to? Who is your reference point?
0: Great. Thank you. So that sort of ties into this next section of your book where you get into the wage gap and delayed fertility. So I was wondering if you could talk more about um, here again how you found sort of an age difference um, in benefits especially. Mm-hmm.
1: So part of the consideration that women make when, when they're thinking about labor force participation decisions or earnings and Um, They have to figure out, you know, what do they currently earn? So what would it cost to leave in terms of their immediate earning losses, but also their long term earnings losses? And you have to consider whether are you on a career ladder? And would you have promotions? Do you have a retirement plan that you would lose from if, if you do leave the labor force? And you have to look at barriers to reentry if if you take time out, perhaps licensing if you're in an occupation that, that requires licensing. And then finally the cost of care, which is um in, in this society we always tie it to how much the mother earns. We we make the trade off between the, the child care costs versus what the mother would bring in. So these are all complex factors. And, and they're not the same by occupation, and, and that's what plays into um, some of these differences that you're talking about, the wage gap by occupation. So most studies find that, that there is a, a motherhood wage gap, and it stems from, from tenure and a variety of other factors. Um, but we've seen more mixed findings for particular groups. So some studies find no gap among highly educated women. Some find the wage premium. some find losses. And newer research is beginning to look at how the gap varies by occupation, but it's not clear cut. So so some find that, especially for managerial and professional women, they have higher earnings. The barriers to reentry might be more severe. Um, They are typically on career ladders, so there are more promotions that they would miss out on. But on the other hand, they have more benefits to remain employed and they have more resources to stay attached to the labor force. So I wanted to look at this and, and really look at um, how the wage gap varies by occupation, but also how it varies by timing, because we we talk about how women delay having children so that they're more established in a career. But that presumes that that you have a career ladder and that there are benefits to delaying to make progress in a career or that you have had promotions or that you will get something by waiting, perhaps, you know, more educational attainment, for instance. So um, what I find is that if we're just looking at mothers generally, um, they're more likely to be out of the labor force. But of those that do remain working, they actually earn more than non-mothers. And this is, of course, a selection effect and that mothers that have higher earnings potential or more attachment to work are probably going to keep working. But then when women have their children matters, but only for some women. So the highest penalty for young motherhood is for managerial and professional women. So on average, they earned $9,000 less per year compared to non-mothers in the same occupation. But they also had the largest premium. So if they had their children later than average, they earned about $11,000 more than non-mothers. So these are the occupations that do have career ladders and where the timing of, of having children might um, be more directly linked to to earnings, but I didn't find that there was any difference for timing of children and the other occupations, so they just have fewer resources they may not be on a career ladder, um, so they may have little to to gain from from delaying fertility.
0: great, thank you. Um... Another really important aspect that I found in your book um, is this point you make about the availability of benefits to women, especially things like paid sick leave. So I was wondering if you could talk more about that.
1: Right. So so one of the things that we can think about with these benefits is um, if you don't have access to paid sick leave, for instance, or paid family leave, and you do have to quit your job because um, you had a child or your child was sick, then you have more career interruptions. And you have that can really affect your wages. And so, you see that um, women that are in these lower-paying occupations, they they may have more career disruptions, which affects their wages generally. But the flip side to that is that they're also in in low-wage occupations with fewer barriers for reentry. So, quitting a job, while well, while they are low income and it, and it can have very serious effects for for their family well-being. They don't face the same barriers to reentry and um, significant loss of skill that you might face in, in some of these other occupations, so that they are able to come back in and get a job.
0: Great, thank you. So, at the end of your book, you give us sort of this big picture or the takeaway from the book. So, I was wondering if you could give us um, a glimpse of that big picture and anything else that you'd like to tell us about your book today.
1: So, so to summarize, um, yeah, in the title of the book I have "Who Ops Out." So. To summarize who opts out, women are far more likely to opt out than men, about 20% of women compared to 4% of men. Mothers of young children are two times as likely to leave the labor force. White and Asian women, especially those that have lower levels of educational attainment and lower earnings, but who are married and have access to other sources of income are more likely to leave. Women in non-managerial and non-professional occupations have higher opt-out rates. And finally, those that lack job flexibility and job benefits are more likely to have to quit their jobs um, because they don't have these resources to enable them to, to stay in the labor force. And then some of the barriers that um, affect women's labor force participation um, are: is this unequal access to paid leave and child care. So the lack of policies in, in the U.S. Has, has really limited women's labor force participation in general, um, not, not just in particular groups. Um, it's less generous even for managerial and professional women compared to other countries. But if we look within the U.S., generally only women in privileged occupations get paid leave because um, even when you look at when companies announce that they're, that they're going to be providing paid leave, usually they talk about it as a retention tool for highly valued employees. So, so that, uh, that creates a lot of inequality for women in the United States. And then the high cost of care. So the US really doesn't invest as much in, in early childhood education compared with Europe. And, and the cost of care is really prohibitive for, for some groups of women to be able to pay for childcare, for instance. And then another major issue that women here face are the lack of flexibility and schedule control. So being able to offer telework or the ability to adjust your work hours. Uh, providing advance notice of schedules, having voluntary overtime rather than mandatory, and providing some time off for for people to be able to attend to other needs. So, for instance, 80% of low-income families say they don't have enough time to take care of their sick children. So that really affects um, labor force participation. And the final barrier that I would mention to to women's work are work hours. So I, I did say that they were declining and, and they are, and fortunately they're declining across all all types of occupations. But an international perspective, work hours continue to be too long. And long work hours are particularly disadvantageous for women because it rewards those with, with fewer outside commitments where we don't assume that people have other caregiving responsibilities. So Scheduling meetings at 4.30 p.m., for instance, when people have to go pick up their kid at daycare is, is typically a challenge for for working parents. So it's just something that, that does affect um, labor force participation. And work hours in general, um, uh, just for, for a broad view, it, it leads to more burnout. You can spread illness in the workforce. There are higher rates of accidents and, and even decreased productivity after you're working um, about 40 hours a week. So the so work hours that are too long are in general not beneficial, not only for, for working families, but for, for people in general.
0: Great. Thank you so much again for talking with us today about your book. Um, I'm kind of curious, what are you working on now and in the future?
1: So um, I'm really interested in, in child care costs right now. Um, it takes up mm-hmm. a disproportionate share of, of low-income workers' um, earnings. And the cost of childcare care exceed college tuition in 39 states. So, so I'm really interested in, in how um, childcare costs are affecting women's employment. And fortunately, there, there's data in, in every state um, that's been collected for another federal agency that would provide me with childcare prices in, in all U.S. counties. So I'm trying to compile a, a data set, um, not only for my use, but for public use, um, where I could release market prices for child care in all local areas, which I plan to combine with um, other federal statistics to look at women's labor force participation and, and see who who it's affecting, what kind of tipping points you see for women's labor force participation, and perhaps what kind of levels and types of subsidies would be helpful to enable women to continue to work.
0: That sounds really cool. Um, Thank you again for talking with us today about your book. Thank you, Sarah. It was great talking with you.